number of years ago, I heard a story about a large downtown church in San Francisco. The congregation was starting to dwindle, but the older people who went there were fiercely committed to it, and they were wealthy. Many had moved to safer parts of the city, but on Sunday mornings, they still drove downtown. The beautiful Gothic architecture, the stained glass, the walls that had been saturated by their prayers for decades, the traditions of a very formal service where everything was beautiful and predictable. Even the ushers seemed so well choreographed in their matching navy suits and conservative ties that they probably had regular rehearsals. The faithful congregation found it a wonderful place for reverent worship of God. But this was the 1960s, and there were other things afoot in downtown San Francisco besides rehearsals for ushers. It was the summer of love. Hippies, anti-war protests, folk music, drugs, and an interest in spirituality. And on one fateful Sunday morning, a hippie, a young man who had been caught up in the movement, walked into the church just after the service began. He was barefoot and had flowers in his hair. Surely that counted as a hat and was forbidden for men in church. His clothes had seen better days, and the aroma coming off him suggested that he had not found a place to shower as he camped out in Haight-Ashbury Park. And instead of discreetly sitting at the back of the church, he waltzed up the center aisle and sat on the floor in front of the very first pew. At the sight of him, the brows of the venerable ladies of the congregation knotted up like pieces of macrame, and several were shielding their noses with delicate silk handkerchiefs. They were far too decorous to say anything to each other, but the thick blanket of their disapproval was palpable nonetheless. The minister paused what he was saying. Something needed to be done. And among the ushers was a man who knew it was his job. He was tall, patrician, and impeccably groomed. He was probably a bank president. As he strode down the aisle with purpose, some in the congregation began to feel a little sad, but, but really, it had to be done. Except, when the usher got to the front, he didn't evict the unusual visitor. He sat down on the floor beside him, welcomed him, oriented him to the service, and shared a hymn book with him. We're spending the few weeks between Epiphany and Lent looking at a letter that James, the leader of the first century church in Jerusalem, wrote to Christians who had been exiled, dispersed across, across Asia Minor and Greece. In the passage we are going to look at today, we learn that James would have been a big fan of that San Francisco bank president I just told you about but might have had some correcting words to offer the sniffing matriarchs. Here's what he wrote. My brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here, please. While to the other one who is poor, you say, stand there or sit at my feet. 
Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Aaron mentioned last week that James is an easier read than the letters of Paul, Paul whose letters are full of complex theological arguments and whose sentences can run 60 to 70 words long and include three subjunctive clauses. James is a lot more direct. It's not too hard to see what is going on in the churches he is writing to. The section we've just read obviously deals with differential treatment of the people who show up to their gatherings. In the example he gives, the rich are being favored over the poor. But I think he's pointing to a broader principle. We are not to judge. We are not to discriminate. Some of you probably know that one of the themes of James's letter is the importance of faith versus good works. It's easy to see how that could be a point of contention for the people James is writing to, believers in Jesus who have come out of a Jewish background. They would have been repeatedly told that the important thing is not obedience to all of the rituals of Judaism, but simply faith in Jesus. But James seems to be concerned that the pendulum has swung too far and his readers have gone to the extreme of thinking that as long as they have faith, it doesn't matter what they do. And he's having none of that. Not because works need to be added to faith, but because if you aren't living in the Jesus way, it's hard to see that you're really believers in Jesus. So he starts this section My brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? Sort of, you may tell me you have faith, but if this is what your lives look like, it's not faith in Jesus. In calling his readers out on favoritism or partiality, James uses the example of discriminating based on wealth, honoring the rich and despising the poor. Like Jesus, he apparently sees people's relationship with money as a litmus test of where their heart is at. And he is especially concerned about discriminating on the basis of money because it's such a superficial attribute. He reinforces that by pointing out that they discriminate based on clothing. He contrasts their treatment of a person with gold rings and in fine clothes with a person, a poor person in dirty clothes. From James's, James's perspective, his readers aren't even seeing people, much less the character, personality, and values of those people. All they see are the clothes. Wealth is a superficial trait, and it can also be a trait that 
changes over time. Already in the previous chapter, James has reminded his readers of the transient nature of wealth. The person you are honoring as wealthy may be poor by next month. Well, maybe not a month. They probably weren't going to lose their shirts in a tech stock disaster. But he says the rich will fade away like a little flower in the field, fade away with all of their achievements. James isn't done. He's made his point that wealth is not a good metric to use in evaluating people in their, in their congregations. It's superficial and it can be temporary. But he also points out that they seem to be using it as the only metric. Once they've determined a person's spot on the economic pecking order, they turn off their curiosity. And he points out that that's really problematic. He says that even though they see the poor as worthless, it is the poor who are rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Perhaps he's saying that people who are poor will more readily live out kingdom values because they don't have the money to insulate themselves from their need to do so. Although this letter was written before Matthew's Gospel, where we find the Beatitudes, James here seems to be in sync with the first Beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the rich? James actually seems a bit confused about why his readers are fawning over the rich, because it is the rich who cause them all sorts of grief. It's the rich who use legal protections to oppress them, and it's the rich who deny Jesus. James says, aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, who speak evil of that good name after, after which you are named? I'm not sure of the specific circumstances that James is referring to, but certainly in a very hierarchical Greco-Roman society, it was a scandal that Christianity didn't recognize class distinctions. It's not too hard to imagine that if a rich person had seen the beauty of the gospel and had put faith in Jesus, might still find it hard to acknowledge to his rich friends that he was spending his Sunday mornings hanging out with slaves and tradespeople. But nonetheless, James's point is that the rich should not be honored as paragons of faith simply because they have a gold watch and a nice car. And the poor shouldn't be despised, but should be celebrated for their faith. My friend Susan asked what I was preaching about this week, and when I told her, she offered a story about Billy Joel. Apparently, he, doesn't, he often doesn't sell the front rows of seats for his concerts. Then, when people start to arrive for the concert, he has his team pull people from the cheap seats and put them into the front rows. He said if you sell the front rows, scalpers buy them and resell at rates only the rich can afford. But those people don't love the music and don't engage with the experience of a live concert. When you bring people from the cheap seats forward, they are true fans, often of modest incomes, who sacrifice to buy tickets for perhaps a once-in-a-lifetime experience. They are glad just to be there and are absolutely delighted to be moved to the front row. They change the whole vibe of the concert. Joel doesn't move them around simply as an act of charity. 
he recognizes that wealth is a poor metric for music appreciation. In this section, James is pointing out how problematic wealth is as a metric of who we should welcome. But I think he's also saying that we should dig past first impressions to see the whole person. A couple of years ago, I told you about having become friends with a co-worker when I was at Sunnybrook. We had lots in common, both foodies, similar tastes in books, movies, and music. I really enjoyed her. Then, after many months, I suddenly learned about her politics, which were repugnant to me. Sadly, if that had been the first thing I learned about her, we likely never would have become friends. I want to get to the point where I can discover all the connecting points with another person, even if the first thing I learn is a disconnect. And I think James would agree. Maybe that's part of what he was getting at in chapter 1 when he said, Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. When I was doing my medical training, one of the really wise general internists at the Toronto Western emphasized the importance of not only thinking about the what, but the why when we saw a patient in the emergency department. An elderly person fell and broke her leg. That's the what. But the why is also important. Why did she fall? Is her apartment unsafe with lots of scatter rugs and a bathroom that's hard to navigate? Does she have a problem with her heart that causes her to faint? Is there a seizure disorder, an alcohol problem? The what is important so that we give the right treatment. But if we don't want it to happen again, understanding the why is also important. James warns his readers not to discriminate, but he also sees the why. He sees that their values have been influenced by the culture around them. Peterson translates the first verse of this section, My friends, don't let public opinion influence how you live out our glorious Christ-originated faith. James recognizes that they aren't discriminating against the poor because well-considered studies of economics or sociology or even scripture have led them there, or because of bad personal experiences with the poor but because that's what the society around them thinks. The communities James is writing to live in a very hierarchical and materialistic society, and he doesn't want them to let those values infiltrate their meetings. They probably don't even see those values. They have become unquestioned assumptions, like water to a fish. But many of those assumptions are contrary to the teachings of Jesus, and need to be reevaluated. Do you remember when dusty rose, dusty blue, and big floral prints were all the rage? I remember thinking they were beautiful and decorating with them. I was so proud of myself for having rejected the harvest gold, avocado green, and burnt orange of the 60s. The avocado green was particularly a sticking point because it was the color of the appliances in my apartment. What was my landlord thinking? But as I look at it now, I realize when they bought that avocado fridge, they probably thought it was beautiful. It wasn't the fridge that had changed, it was the fashion. And if I'm honest, 
I once thought those harvest tones were lovely too. One of my favorite articles of clothing ever was a pair of bell-bottom pants my mum made for me of paisley fabric in avocado green, burnt orange, and harvest gold. I don't share that because I want to encourage you to adopt or shun a particular fashion scheme, but because for me it is a striking example of the influence of culture on my views and preferences. What once had seemed beautiful to me, I now judge to be not just neutral, but hideous. Not because in the meantime I've studied art or fashion or feng shui, but because the fashion dictates of the world around me have changed. I'm not sure even how I was influenced because I don't watch television or read fashion magazines. I'm realizing it's not that we have to work hard to figure out what's fashionable. We have to work hard to remember what's important, even if it's not fashionable. James tells his readers, My friends, don't let public opinion influence how you live out our glorious Christ-originated faith. Paul hits the same note when he tells the church in Rome, Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold but let God remold your minds from within. With all the pervasive influences of society around us and all the channels they have to get at us in a digital age, how are we ever going to sort this out? Here's the good news. We don't need to figure out the right set of rules for who we should honor and who we should marginalize. We need to love everyone. James calls this the royal rule. He ends today's passage saying, You do well when you complete the royal rule of the scriptures. Love others as you love yourself. But if you play up to these so-called important people, you go against the rule and stand convicted by it. You can't pick and choose in these things. It's simple. Simple, but far from easy. We are wired up to be suspicious of what's different from us. Probably a hangover from our distant tribal past. And our society trains us how to rank people on a whole host of criteria. Wealth, political leanings, appearance, and in particular, weight. Social confidence, ethnicity, gender orientation, education, favorite sports teams, and so on, and so on, and so on. We can even get trained on who to reject in a church context. You may have been to a church where you were warned about the danger of uppity women who presume to speak from the pulpit, or told to shun gays, or told to shun people who shun gays. James says the point is not to figure out which are the right criteria. The point is love. Brian Resnick writes that it's our instinct to be distrustful of those whom we perceive as being them rather than us. In prehistoric times, this is what kept us safe. In the modern age, it's what nudges us toward bigotry. Something that's that deeply buried in our brain's CPU is going to be hard to unwire. Although in his article, Resnick shows evidence that it certainly can be done. But I want to notice what he said about the upside of that kind of distrust. It keeps us safe. It's why we like it. 
And so, although I've said this before, it certainly bears repeating. If we deprive ourselves of the safety of excluding everyone not like us, if we step across divides to offer love, as James encourages, we have to maintain healthy boundaries. James is writing to a fledgling congregation flung across a hostile Roman Empire. The strategy he offers them so that they will survive and thrive is not thicker walls, better preachers, or even more tightly choreographed meetings. He offers them the only strategy that Jesus taught. Love one another. It's the strategy he offers us as well. 